If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's episode, we've got another lecture from our 2019 History Weekend event in Winchester. Today's speaker is the historian Eleanor Woodacre who's delivering a talk on queens on screen. In this talk, she explores the ways that Tudor and early modern queens have been portrayed in cinema and television, from the favourite and Mary Queen of Scots to the Tudors and the Spanish princess. Um, So today I'm going to be talking to you about early modern queens on screen. So the first question I always get is, what do I mean by early modern? Uh, early modern is a, is, a, is a terrible descriptor, to be honest. It's one that people in my field have been kind of lumped with. But basically, we're talking about queens who lived their lives roughly from 1500 to 1800. But of course, we're going to be looking at their representation in modern films and cinema, so 20th and 21st century. And what I'm going to be doing today is I'm going to be asking a couple of big questions. Now, <clears throat> these questions are going to kind of run through the talk today. And I'm going to be referring back to them at various points. And then at the end, we're hopefully, we'll have some answers for some of these big questions. So one of the questions I'm going to be asking is, what's the connection between the modern today and the early modern? So, you know, what, what's, what's going on there? Why do we focus on particular queens? So at one point, I'm going to talk about popularity stakes and, the, you know, thinking about the particular queens that keep popping up on our screens over and over and over again and why that is. So we're going to be thinking about that. We're going to be unpicking some of the stereotypes that tend to occur in the portrayal of these queens, these kind of boxes that we tend to put them in. And we'll be kind of thinking about what are these boxes? Why do they exist? And again, what does this tell us about not only these queens, but about us as well? 
And then finally, we're going to talk about the accuracy question. We're going to kind of round back up with that because that's something that we always get. And I'm sure many of you, how many times have you guys watched a film or a TV series and gone, that didn't happen. Hang on a minute. You know? <laughs> yeah. So we're going to have that discussion as well at the end. So now I must admit, I'm going to have to watch my time here because this is one of those topics I was just admitting right before the, before the talk started. I can get really excited about and wax enthusiastic. So I'm going to have to watch myself here that I don't kind of waffle on too much about the bits that I'm excited about. So I'm going to start and think about the inspiration for films. So where are these films coming from? So Obviously, there's a huge representation of queens in both fiction and film, and obviously there's a long-term fascination with queens and royal figures, going right back, obviously, to, you know, Cleopatra, ancient pharaohs, Hashtabut, all that kind of thing, right up to the present day. And even today, obviously, if, you know, you're at the supermarket and the newsstands are full of Majesty Magazine and Kate and Meghan and all of that kind of thing. So we have this enduring interest in and fascination in the lives of queens, royal women, uh, famous women generally. So that's, you know, that's an enduring thing. Now, Obviously, we have to acknowledge that our, and, and you can tell, I have to say our, um, I, am, I am both a British and an American passport holder, but you can tell by my accent where I've come from. And Americans obviously have this enduring fascination with the monarchy. Obviously, as you know, it's incredibly popular over the water, and that trickles into Hollywood. So if the American populace is interested in it, Hollywood is super interested in it too. So there's that as well. Now, this enduring fascination with an interest in queens, in some ways, is where not just just the interest in popular culture comes from, but also the foundation of the area that I work in, which is queenship studies. So that's an academic kind of area of study that looks not just at the lives of queens, but on the exercise of the office of queen as well, and kind of how that works and the elements of that. So it's all kind of coming from the same source, this interest in these women, their lives, the challenges of rulership, all of these elements. We want to know about it. Now, one of the things that's really directly fed into the 20th and 21st century portrayal of queens on screen is the Victorian legacy. They have a lot to answer for, both positively and negatively. So one of the things that was incredibly popular, not just in the Victorian era, but had a real heyday in the Victorian era, is collective biography. How many of you guys have heard of Agnes Strickland's Lives of the Queens of England? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Agnes's work was not the only um, collective biography of queens. Obviously, there's loads out there. I teach a whole MA module on them. Um, but she was incredibly popular. These works were reprinted again and again. Uh, many novelists like Jean Plady took those lives of the queens of England and turned them into kind of novel form. That, again, inspired filmmakers. So there's this really kind of long-term legacy from these 19th century biographies of queens. Again, Strickland and her ilk, if you like. Now, Strickland's not the only one who's interested in queens. It's not just in the text. We also see a huge surge of romantic art in the 19th century that's making these kind of dramatic portrayals of history. And behind me, you can see De La Roche's execution of Lady Jane Grey. How many of you guys have seen this in person? Isn't it stunning? It's an absolutely beautiful canvas. I don't know about you guys. Every time I see this, I want to touch her dress. It just, the silk, it just feels like tactile, doesn't it? 
But it's this wonderful, dramatic portrayal of this uh, pivotal kind of moment, this, this last moment in the life of a, of a young queen, which we'll be coming back to in film later. So there's that inspiration. And also in the 19th century, we've got a surge of operas like Anna Bolena. Uh, we've got plays like Maria Stewart as well. So again, it's just kind of coming at you from all directions. And so that 19th century surge of interest kind of follows on into the 20th century age of cinema. Now, in the modern era as well, we have to acknowledge that it's not just in the Victorian era, but today where we have this kind of continuous feedback loop between queens on screen and also queens on the page and queens on the stage. So for example, I've got some pictures here. Obviously you guys are familiar with The Favourite and Mary Queen of Scots, the two films that came out last year, which I'll be talking more about later. Immediately before those films came out, we had the RSC, uh, Helen Edmonston's play, Queen Anne. Anybody catch that while it was out, either in Stratford or in London? It was absolutely excellent. Not long after that, they make the favorite. Now, <clears throat> I can't guarantee for sure there's a 100% connection there, but certainly that resurgence of interest and, and, and again, that uh, you know, people saying, wow, Queen Anne, what an interesting life. All of a sudden, bing, there's a movie. Um, you've got to think that there's a connection there. And here is a recent staging of, of Maria Stewart or Mary Stewart, um, again, that was uh, really critically acclaimed in the West End and again, immediately preceded Mary Queen of Scots. Again, may not be a direct connection, but it shows that it's happening not just on the screen, but in other places as well. And we can also see books providing inspiration for filmed portrayals. So The Other Boleyn Girl, again, uh, the, the famous novel by Philippa Gregory was first turned into a BBC TV series and then turned into a film. And obviously Marie Antoinette by Antonia Fraser was cited by Sofia Coppola as the inspiration for her own film on Marie Antoinette by, with Kirsten Dunst that we'll be talking more about in 2006. So another thing I just want to talk about is these big kind of eras of film. Now, one of the things that we can see is there's obviously a consistent interest in queens on screen, but there's also some real surges that we can see. And that's happening along with kind of other wider trends in Hollywood, for example. One big surge that we can see is in the 1930s. Now, we call it the golden age of cinemas, massive amount of film production generally, but they were really interested in the 1930s in royal biopics. So there's a huge interest in the lives of royal figures, not just queens, and obviously because of this, we see all the major queens that we'll be talking about in just a minute getting a good portrayal or two in the 1930s. We also have to go right to the other side. We have kind of a bit of a heyday in the 60s and 70s as well. Um, this is Anne of the Thousand Days, which my, uh, my queenship students are actually going to be watching next Tuesday. And I've told them, I think Genevieve Bujold, best Anne Boleyn. In, in my, for my money, Genevieve gets the, the golden star there. So that's a really good example from that era. And then obviously from our more modern era. Um, this is just one example, obviously, today from the kind of 1990s to the present day, we've had another real surge of interest in the lives of queens, again, as last year's films uh, showed us really well. Now, just very quickly, I want to make kind of a side note. I am talking about the queens of early modern Europe more here, but I wanted to note that this is actually not just a European phenomenon. This interest in the lives of queens is definitely not just a European phenomenon. And actually in my own modules, I teach about global queenship. I'm trying to bring more of the women um, from China, India, Africa, pre-Columbian Americas into my medieval queenship classes because there's some amazing women. And actually that's reflected in terms of treatments of early modern queens and empresses and concubines, etc. royal women across the world as well. 
So one of the things that we see that's been really popular recently is what's kind of known as the harem soap. So obviously in these kind of polygamous court contexts where you have not just a queen or an empress, but you have royal consorts, royal concubines, um, and, and more, <laughs> you have a lot of kind of jostling for supremacy and infighting, etc. And that kind of forms the, the plot lines, if you like, of a lot of these harem soaps. I don't know if any of you guys have caught any of these on Netflix, but they're highly recommended. You've got empresses in the palace, that was a good one. Magnificent Century, this is a huge Turkish soap. And they started off with Suleiman the Magnificent and then did several spin-off series. Um, I still need to see the one on Kuzem Sultan. Uh, in India, again, there's been several treatments of the life of Noor Jahan. One of them came from uh, the, the novel The 20th Wife, actually. Um, any of you caught any of these on like Netflix, etc.? No, add them to your watch list. Well worth a look. And outside our period, but the one I'm obsessed with at the moment is Empress Key. So definitely add those to your watch list. Right, back to Europe. <laughs> okay, so I said I was going to talk a bit about the connection between the modern and the early modern. One of the things that we can clearly see in terms of our interest in, and perhaps our more recent interest in queens on screen and women in power in the early modern period, is our interest in women in power today. So it goes without saying that today we are seeing, thank goodness, a huge surge of female politicians around the world in positions of power and authority, and again, you know, making it representative assemblies, leading nations, etc. Now that is obviously changes the way that we look back on the past and the way that we look at women and power and authority and governance in the past as well. But it also helps pique our interest as well. And we are, whether we are doing it deliberately or subconsciously, making those connections between women in power today and women in power then. The question is, because feminism and because it's part of our modern makeup, um, it's part of our modern landscape. It's part of our, we're picking it up by osmosis, again, however you feel about it. And that goes into the films that we make as well. And one of the kind of dangers of that is that we are kind of turning the queens of the past into proto-feminists, that we're looking to make the women of the past kind of uh, uh, demonstrate values and behaviors that resonate with us, but may not have been uh, something that they could have identified. Again, if you'd talked to Anne Boleyn and, and said, yeah, are you a feminist? You'd have been like, what are you talking about? So <laughs> we have to be a little bit careful there. Right. So I'm going to move on and talk about the queens that have tended to dominate our screens and thinking a little bit about why we focus on them. Now, some of the, these questions I'm going to answer as we go through, and some of it I'm going to kind of filter along as we go. But in this section, I want to kind of raise your awareness of the queens that have gotten the lion's share of the attention. So one of them is Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn. I tell you guys, if I had a pound for every student that wanted to come in and do a dissertation on Anne Boleyn, every dissertation I assume Oh, my goodness gracious me. People love her. She has literally a fangirl following, or fanboy. She has, she literally, she's huge. She's an industry in and of herself, as we'll talk more about in just a second. And because of our interest in her, she has been represented on film again and again and again. Now, all these lists of films behind me are not meant to be comprehensive. I know there'll be someone going, oh no, you forgot this film. I know, I'm just trying to give you a flavor of how often they've been on screen. So going right from the German 1920 silent film, Anna Boleyn, I think it was also subtitled Deception, which gives you an idea of how they're playing that one. Uh, again, my, my uh, students were watching The Private Life of Henry VIII in the 1930s. Anyone seen that one? 
Yeah, it's good fun. We were having a right old giggle. Now, obviously, Anne Boleyn gets a little bit of short shrift in that one. Catherine of Aragon, if you've seen that film, it literally starts with saying, yeah, she wasn't very interesting. We're not going to talk about her effectively. And then we start with the execution of Anne Boleyn and we go forward. Um, so it's an interesting film, that one. Well worth a watch, again, if you haven't seen it. Again, we've talked about Anne of the Thousand Days. There's Genevieve again, you know, love her. Um, and again, she comes up again and again and again. More modern portrayals that you're obviously, I'm sure, familiar with with Natalie Dormer and Natalie Portman as well. Now, the thing with Anne, and I think one of the reasons why we're, we're so interested in her is that she's a bit of an enigma. She, is, she comes up and she's portrayed in so many different ways. So sometimes she's portrayed as this innocent victim that was, you know, again, just sacrificed. She was, you know, she was a good egg. She loved Henry. She was innocent of the crimes, etc. Sometimes she comes across as this kind of wicked, ambitious schemer. How many of you guys have seen Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies? Yeah, she doesn't come across very well in that one. Anne, is, that's nasty Anne. That really is. And a lot of my students who like him are like, oh, I don't like that one. Mm, no, no, no. So sometimes, she, sometimes she's, you know, the ambitious one. Sometimes she's this kind of smart and sassy, again, this kind of proto-feminist, and she gets kind of slapped down for being too clever and too sassy. So she comes across in different ways, in different portrayals. We, we can't agree on the way we see Anne. Now, I've got this one behind me. How many of you guys have seen Six, which is playing in the West End? and going on tour. Okay, those of you guys who have seen this, this is Anne. Apparently, this Anne is inspired by Lily Allen. And if you've seen this show, you'll know exactly what I mean, yeah? This is an Anne who is not smart, who is not sass. She's kind of an Essex girl. And she's like, oh, sorry, did I, did I mess things up? Sorry. You know, she, she's a very different kind of Anne. But she's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to see Anne played against type. Again, some of my students who like Anne Boleyn are kind of like, I'm not sure about that Anne. So it's an interesting one. Like I said, they're literally taking the Anne that we, we kind of have constructed and flipping her over a little bit. Now, now, speaking of that, there's a whole book by Susan Bordeaux called The Creation of Anne Boleyn, and it talks about how there's the historical Anne Boleyn, and there's this kind of mythical Anne Boleyn that we've created that's kind of a lot about us and maybe not so much about Anne. And I think a lot of this kind of jury out on Anne reflects the fact that she's this dynamic kind of shape-shifting, kind of almost become not a quasi-legendary figure, but you know what I mean? She has this kind of other and the real Anne. Another one like that is Eleanor of Aquitaine, and again, another book, if you enjoy Eleanor of Aquitaine, is Michael Evans's Inventing Eleanor, where again, he talks about the historical Eleanor and this kind of Eleanor that we've created. And Anne's an interesting one because of that. So another one who's really popular is Anne's daughter, Elizabeth I. Obviously, we've had a lot of Elizabeth I. Now, I mentioned how many dissertations I've had on Anne. My former PhD supervisor, when, uh, when she was teaching undergrads, basically said, I will not have another dissertation on Elizabeth I. Leave her alone. You know, she's had enough. Just, you know, she was like, Rrr. you know, and students be like, okay, fine, sorry about that. So yeah, Elizabeth I, we love Elizabeth I. We keep coming back to her life. We love all the aspects of her life. I've just given you a few examples there, all the way from Sarah Bernhardt's 1912, uh, portrayal of her all the way down. Now, obviously, we tend to portray Elizabeth as this kind of great queen, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about how we portray her vis-a-vis -vis Mary, Queen of Scots in a minute. But I've got two ones at the bottom that, again, are kind of playing against type. How many of you guys have seen Anonymous? 
Yeah, in Anonymous, we have not only Vanessa Redgrave, but her daughter. Both of them play Elizabeth at different points in her life. And there, Elizabeth is definitely not the Virgin Queen. So again, spoilers here, but a, part, a major part of the plot is that Elizabeth has been sleeping around and poor Cecil has been hiding her bastards everywhere. So that's a very different portrayal of Elizabeth there, okay? So again, very challenging our ideas of the Virgin Queen. Um, and also Blackadder. How many of you guys have seen Elizabeth I in Blackadder? Yeah, she's hilarious in Blackadder. I mean, you know, she, she's giggly and funny and then threatening to cut people's heads off and she wants toys and presents and, you know, she's really good fun. So again, but that's playing against type and it's funny because it's not the Elizabeth the Great that we know kind of thing. Speaking of which, why don't we call her Elizabeth the Great? Why do we have Catherine the Great and we don't have Elizabeth the Great? I think we need to start a movement on that. But anyway, there we go. I digress. Okay, so Mary, Queen of Scots. She's the other one that we can't stop talking about. We can't stop putting her on film. We love her. And again, um, you know, right from the 1920s onwards, in fact, I'll even talk about an 1895 short at one point about her. So Mary, Queen of Scots, enduring fascination. Um, this actually, not even last year, so it was this year, wasn't it? It was the beginning of this year that film came out. So again, we keep coming back to Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, the thing with Mary, Queen of Scots, I want to kind of forward on to kind of talk about them together, is the thing is that we tend to look at Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots together. It's almost impossible not to bring them together, unless, except for when you do those films, which is just the very beginning of Elizabeth or the very end of Elizabeth's reign. But generally, they're, they, they come into opposition. They're, it's this kind of battle of the queens, these two women that are rivals and, and cousins and diametrically opposed and fighting for the throne. And so it's tend to come down to kind of Team Elizabeth, Team Mary kind of scenarios. I really think they need to get shirts made for this. And <laughs> really, you know, it kind of comes down to who's the victim and who's the who's the who's the victor rather. And we'll be talking about those victim and victor stereotypes in just a minute. But one of the interesting things that you get in the portrayal of these women is you often get this dichotomy between the woman and the queen, love and duty. So this kind of spectrum that Mary is the, is the one who chooses to be the woman and she puts love in front of duty and then pays these consequences for it. Whereas Elizabeth shuts out love and she's, she's all about duty and she's all about the queen and she pays the price of basically turning into kind of a mannequin because she has no love in her life. So they, some really interesting kind of, you know, this way of kind of foiling them off one another. And one of the things that's really interesting about them is we keep trying to recreate this scene that never happened, this, this imaginary meeting between them. And it's become this trope. And even though we know it never happens, and every time, like the film that came out earlier this year, of course, all, instantly all the stories say, well, they never met. Of course they never met. But it's become a trope. Audiences expect it because it's been in the plays, because it's been in previous films, because it comes up even in TV. Okay? It's because she's constantly this kind of idea that they must have met. And then what did they say to each other? Did they have a slanging match? Did they, were they sympathetic? You know, what was it all about? So we keep bringing that back again and again and again. And one of the interesting things on stage is we've taken that idea of them meeting even further. So in the, um, it is, again, I'm not expecting you to have seen this, there was a kind of obscure um, Belgian uh, two-woman play where, again, it was the, the whole play was Elizabeth and Mary kind of on stage with each other the whole time kind of having an interchange. Or again, Mary Stewart, I had that picture of that play earlier. The two actresses used to flip a coin at the beginning of the performance to see which would play Mary and which would play Elizabeth. And again, that play is built on the tension between those two women. 
So we really kind of take that idea to the nth degree, taking this idea of a meeting that never happened and pulling out until a whole play is where we're on stage together. Um, but again, we keep kind of it keep coming out again and again. And again, it's not just us that are fascinated. It's not just the Americans and, and the kind of Anglophone audience that obsess with these women. Again, in, recently on Spanish TV, there was a series called Reinas, uh, a virgin and martyr, effectively, that featured the two queens. And you can see that on the bottom there. So it's not just us who are fascinated with these two women. And again, they ended in tragedy and Mary, the Queen of Scots, losing her head, as we'll go back to in just a minute. So moving further on into the 18th century, there's a couple of other queens that get a mention beyond the British Isles and beyond the 16th century that keep popping up on our screen. And one of them is Catherine the Great. How many of you guys have been watching Helen Mirren on Sky? Okay, not as many as I thought, but again, again, the most recent, you're probably aware of it. Again, it's gotten a lot of kind of press coverage recently. Again, that's just the most modern version of a continual interest, again, in Catherine the Great. Now, Catherine the Great, again, not one of our own rulers, but one that we're very familiar with. And we'll be talking about the importance of, there's, there's a couple of factors with, with Catherine the Great that we'll be talking about. We'll be talking about kind of her, her victory. We'll also be talking about her love life. And I think these two factors combined um, are, are part of the reason we keep kind of going back and back to her. In fact, um, The Scarlet Empress, you can see Marlena Dietrich there, 1934, there were two films that came out in the same year. You know how Hollywood loves to do that. And it's like, one's not enough, let's bring out two. Um, so in the same year they came out and Marlena Dietrich's The Scarlet Empress was originally titled Her Regiment of Lovers. And <laughs> this is right when censorship was starting to come in. And it was considered to be a little too steamy. It kind of had to tone it down a little bit. So we'll kind of come back to that when we talk about viragos and the portrayal of kind of queenly sexuality on screen. And of course, the other 18th century queen that we just cannot get enough of is Marie Antoinette. And apologies for the way I've listed some of these. If I say with Norma Shearer's because they're just, the film's called Marie Antoinette. And I was thinking, how can I kind of <laughs> express that? So again, Norma Shearer's 1938, against kind of star vehicle, if you like, for her. Again, another silent version. We talked about the silent um, Anna Boleyn in the 1912 Sarah Bernhardt version. Again, she's another one that's early out the blocks. And again, we keep kind of going back and back to her. And I'm going to be talking more about the Kirsten Dunst and the Les Adieux movie um, when we get a little bit further on. Now, I'll keep coming back again to these ideas about why these particular women are so uh, enduring and, and our interest is so kind of connected to them. But another thing I wanted to know is that we also, we don't just keep returning to the same queen's lives, we keep going back to the same actresses to play them. And it's really interesting. So Elizabeth I, for example, there's a whole slew of actresses I've given you here. Uh, Kate Blanchett was the one you're probably most familiar with. And they keep saying they're going to make that a trilogy. So there's another Kate Blanchett Elizabeth film coming. Um, Flora Robson, obviously you can see her picture there. Uh, Betty Davis played her twice. Um, so again, she gets, you know, actresses kind of tend to come back. Glenda Jackson, a lot of people, how many, how many of you love the Glenda Jackson? Yeah, see, a lot of people always say that's the best. Elizabeth. I, I kind of like her. Yeah, I agree with you on that one, to be honest. Her, Kate Blanchett, I like, but yeah, I, I don't know. There's something about Glenda Jackson. Maybe because she went into politics. Again, she's got that very intimate bond between women in power in the early modern and modern period. Anyway, but 
There are some women as well that make whole careers out of playing queens. And I've highlighted Vanessa Redgrave, but actually, I was thinking about, like, Helen Mirren almost kind of, we could put her in that same category. I mean, how many queens has Helen Mirren played? She's played Elizabeth. She's played Catherine the Great, you know, Queen Charlotte. I'll be talking about that later on. So, again, but Vanessa Redgrave, I mean, she has played them all. Mary, Queen of Scots, Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth I, the, all the Holy Trinity. You know, she's played them all. Um, she played Empress Elizabeth of Russia in the, young, in the biopic uh, Young Catherine. Um, she's also played other queens like, how many of you guys have seen the movie Camelot? I loved that when I was a kid. Yes, Guinevere. All right. So yeah, so we definitely, we think of her, we think of queens, we think of her. She keeps coming back on our screen. Right. Okay. So that, again, we'll be kind of thinking about this as we go along through these kind of typologies. We'll be thinking again about these boxes and why certain women fit into them. And again, we keep kind of coming back to their lives. So what I'm going to do is kind of go through a whole series of different um, again, categories that we tend to kind of place these queens into. And I'm going to start with virgins. Now, by virgins, I don't just mean Elizabeth I who never married. I'm talking about teen queens on screen. And there's a real kind of emphasis on young queens or the beginning of queens' lives, and it's really plugging into that teen dynamic. So Hollywood filmmakers realized in the 1950s that all of a sudden there was this huge market that teens went to the cinema and they spent money on tickets, and all of a sudden the teen film was born. So going right back to Young Bess with Gene Simmons, which is on the kind of early, very early years, more the kind of Seymour period, if you like, of Elizabeth the First Life, and then obviously the heyday of teen films in the 1980s. I will be honest, I, that is my generation. I'm dating myself here. But those teen films, again, all those John Hughes films, The Breakfast Club, Sixteen Candles, all of that was about tapping into that market. You can do it with queens too. And the way that you do that is by focusing on those younger years of a queen's life, you can emphasize that even queens have those same problems. First love, first heartbreak, problems with your parents, that awkwardness of growing up, all of those things, queens went through them too. And you can make a woman who lived hundreds of years ago in a very different scenario, all of a sudden, relatable. And a really good example of that is the TV series Rain. How many of you guys have watched Rain, be honest? Okay, when I ask my students that, they're all like, they love Rain. And I'll be honest with you, I call it Mary Queen of Scots goes to high school. Okay. It is, it is, that, I'm sorry, that is what it is. I, I really struggle with it. My students love it. And it is fun, but it is consciously trying to tap into that audience. And if you read some of the uh, interviews with the producers, the actors, etc., they have said, look, we're not trying to capture her life accurately. We're trying to make it interesting and engaging and bring it to this audience, etc. And that's exactly what they have done. And that's why it has been so popular. So full credit to them. They have got that teen dynamic down pat, and they've really done that really, really well. Um, now, this one, Marie Antoinette, the Kirsten Dunst film, this is a cover of Vogue, and you can see the headline, Kirsten Dunst as the teen queen who rocked Versailles, okay? And they are clearly trying to portray her to that market, this idea of the same issue, you know? She's had to leave home. She's had to leave her parents behind. She's got to deal with the awkwardness. Oh, she falls in love. She buys lots of shoes, you know? They're making her approachable for that audience. And again, it works really well. Um, now, some ones that aren't as obvious, but also kind of fit into this dynamic. I talked briefly about young Catherine with Julia Ormond, who I see is back on our screens with, um, oh God, 
oh, what is it? The gold digger. They keep pushing that on BBC. Anyway, she was not excellent in that. Um, Lady Jane. How many of you guys have seen Lady Jane? Yeah, with Helena Bonham I love that film. I love that film. Now, again, not an obvious teen film, but Lady Jane's going through all that kind of stuff too. Again, oh, my parents hate me. I'm awkward. Oh, I fell in love. Oh, you know, all those kind of things. It, it, it doesn't seem like an obvious one, but that's made in the heyday of teen films. And again, they are kind of very subtly and in a more historically well, semi-historically accurate kind of way, plugging into that dynamic. And again, it kind of changes the way you look at these things. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Another one that we can look at is um, victors. So this is another one of these um, boxes or stereotypes that we tend to put queens into. And here we go back to our Catherine the Great and our Elizabeth I and think about that. Now, you would think, okay, if we're interested in queen and women and power and feminism, then we're all about these victor queens, you know, queens, women being powerful and brave and etc. But actually, there's not as much of this as you might think. Think. Again, thinking about our modern interests, you think we're, we're doing all the queens like this now. Mm, yes and no. So, But we do get queens making rousing speeches. Now, again, if you've seen Elizabeth the Golden Age, which when I teach it to my, um, I do the Spanish Golden Age, and I, I kind of show them that film, and I say, this is the black legend of Spain rides again, because it's, it's, it, is, it is a really interesting one in that way. But Elizabeth gets all the best speeches. Have you guys seen that one? She goes, I too can command the wind, sir, and she's really tough as nails, and you're like, bah! 
badass. You go, girl. You know, she's, she's, she's really tough, right? And we love that. And the Tilbury speech, it's, it comes out in every Elizabeth film. We love it. Now, historians have been arguing about the Tilbury speech. Did she really make the speech? Which version of it is accurate? Is, you know, do we just throw the whole thing out? Is it just an imaginary thing? Okay. But it comes into every film because we love it. We love her sitting there going, I have the heart and stomach of a king. And we're like, yay, you know, hooray, defend England. You know, it's, it's a blitz moment, right? And, and that's one of the reasons we keep coming back to Elizabeth I. We keep coming back to the Tilbury speech because the Spanish Armada is one of those great moments in our national history that we feel proud of, that when we repulsed, you know, an invasion that could have been disastrous. And so, again, Elizabeth is is intimately connected with that moment. That speech is intimately connected with that moment. And so it keeps coming up on film again and again and again. Now, that's a great example of like the victorious queen. And again, this idea of kind of queens and national memory. But also, coronation scenes are often moments of triumph, moments where we can see queens kind of coming to the throne, coming to power. And an interesting one is if we look at portrayals of Catherine the Great, so you guys are all familiar with the fact that Catherine the Great took the throne in a coup. She basically unseated her husband, who was then killed shortly afterwards, and she took power. Now, when uh, filmmakers have approached her coronation, and many of the films about her life have been focused on that part of her life, that kind of coming to Russia, adjusting, throwing, overthrowing her husband and taking power. The Helen Mirren one is, 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 a, is, an, is an interesting rare example that actually focuses on the latter years of her life. But that coronation scene is interesting because sometimes it's portrayed as triumph. You know, she's gotten out of this bad marriage and overthrown her horrible husband and she's taken the throne. But sometimes it's portrayed as tragedy. So the 1934, the other 1934, the rise of Catherine the Great. Anyone seen that one? It's a little obscure. Okay, you guys are looking at me blankly. That's okay. YouTube, it's all on there. Um, at the end, she has her coronation scene. It's this moment of tragedy. And then right at the end, they tell her that her husband's been killed. Now, in this particular version, she actually loved her husband and he just rejected her and she was kind of heartbroken about it. Um, and so when they tell her that her husband's been killed, it all comes crumbling down and she's all of her, all of her victory is worth nothing because her love is dead and woe is me kind of thing. And it's turned that triumph into tragedy. Similarly, in young Catherine, it kind of goes back and forth in the coronation scene between her being crowned and her lover. And again, in that version of it, Orlov was her great love, and she knows that she has to sacrifice her love to be queen. So there's this kind of tragedy, triumph and tragedy kind of scenario as well. Right, so moving into the tragedy side of things, we're going to talk a little bit about the trope of the victim queen, the tragic queen. And actually, I just had a student finish a master's dissertation on the Victorian trope of the tragic queen. And it was really, really interesting. And again, that idea of the tragic queen really informs this kind of victim mentality. So I'm going to focus on two different kinds of kind of tragic victim queens. And one is queens who lose their crown. Well, actually, the whole thing is about queens who lose their crown. We're going to talk about different kinds of ways. I will get to executions. Give me two seconds. <laughs> and we're going to start with abdicating queens because the early modern period 
has some really interesting women who abdicate from the throne. And we can argue about whether that abdication in the case of Mary, Queen of Scots, was effectively a deposition, or queens that voluntarily abdicated or stepped back from power. So Christina of Sweden is a really interesting one because she continues to fascinate us because of this scenario that she stepped away from the throne and then had this very colorful life post-queenship, which doesn't actually get on the screen very often. And it's been treated very many times. And one of them is Greta Garbo's Queen Christina. Anybody ever seen that one? Yeah, it's great. I've made my students watch that one before. Now, that's an interesting one because in that one, it turns it into a tragedy that, again, she gives it all up for the love of the Spanish ambassador who gets killed right when she abdicates and it's tragic. And it's all, you know, it's a three-hanky job at the end, okay? I'm sorry, spoilers for those of you who haven't seen it. Um, but again, it turns it into this great tragedy. She becomes this great victim queen, giving it all up for love and for nothing. And so sad. Um, so again, there's been different treatments of that. Juana la loca. Um, of Castile, another really interesting figure. Now, technically doesn't abdicate. She's queen of Castile until she dies in 1555. Um, but what happens to her is she gets sidelined, first by her husband, then by her father, and then by her son. And she eventually ends up in Tordesinos, um, effectively not quite locked up, but sort of. Um, now, the big question with Juana la Loca is, was she loca? Was she mad? Or again, was it just an excuse that was leveraged by her male relatives to push her aside? question mark. Now, there's been many recent treatments of her life, um, again, mostly in Spanish, but Mad Love was actually released in English with subtitles and won an Oscar, actually, for foreign film. Really good. And that one literally goes on the premise that she was driven mad by love. She was absolutely driven insane by her love and the horrible treatment of her husband. A slightly different take in Spain. Recently, there was the Isabel TV series, uh, and then later they had Carlos Rey Emperador. In between, they had La Corona Partida, which was a film that was made, just of Juana La Loca. And in this one as well, we've got a strong woman who's been kind of mentally tortured by her husband and is kind of fighting back against it, is still kind of fighting and to kind of push aside this horrible man who's just dominating her life. There's some interesting treatments, but she's always kind of a, a, this tragic figure, whether she's completely mad and insane and they go all the way with La Loca, or whether she's not Loca, but the tragedy is that she isn't Loca and they're treating her that way and that they forced her out. So she's an interesting figure. Now, divorced. Um, that's some, another instance. Queens that lose their throne through divorce or the ending of a marriage. Now, Sarah Band for Dead Lovers features Sophia Dorothea of Sel, who uh, one historian I was at a conference on the Hanoverian said was the best queen of England that we never had. So she was the wife of George I, um, but she and George I had lovers and she paid the price for that. She was divorced and effectively imprisoned. Um, it, it wasn't bad enough to be divorced. She had to be locked up as well. Um, so she was the nasty little secret at the beginning of the Hanoverian reign. And that's not been filmed very often, but Sarah Band for Dead Lovers tends to, it tries to do her relationship with her lover, Consmark, uh, justice. Now, we're more familiar with the divorces and annulments and endings of marriages of Henry VIII. And what's interesting is they're starting to get a new narrative about these women. So Catherine of Aragon, again, we talked about how in the private lives of Henry VIII, she was completely ignored. We talked about how they just said, yeah, forget her. She's not very interesting. 
she tends to get overshadowed by Anne Boleyn, or if she is portrayed, she's the dowdy old queen that's being pushed aside in the king's great matter. But recently, she's becoming a featured player. And in both historiography and popular culture, we're starting to see Catherine of Aragon kind of re-emergent and, and again, coming back to the forefront and not just being a victim queen. Similarly with Anne of Cleves. So the um, private lives of Henry VIII actually has quite an interesting narrative with Anne of Cleves as a woman who manages to con Henry VIII of leaving her alone so she can get on with the guy that she really likes. Um, so that, there's one one. But again, going back to Six, any of you that have seen Six, Anne of Cleves basically says, hey, you know what? I've got it all. I don't have to deal with the man. I've got the palace. I've got the money. I've got my freedom. Thank you very much. You know, So she's not the one who gets left behind. She's actually the victor in all that. So it's an interesting one. Catherine Howard, again, I've got six behind me. That's an interesting one where we're changing the narrative from, um, again, a victim or even a promiscuous queen to, again, really leveraging ideas of the Me Too movement and casting her almost as a victim of abuse. Um, really interesting kind of re-spinning of the narrative with that one. Now, I promised I would get on to killing queens. I promised that we would have executions. Now, that's the other thing that's really interesting in terms of victim queens in our period. We have this really weird plethora of dead queens that we've kind of off with their heads. And it makes good film, doesn't it? It really does. Going right back, like I said, to that 1895 stop motion, Mary Queen of Scots. Again, you can find this on YouTube. It is, it is so quick. It's a little 30 second clip, but it was basically them experimenting with stop motion to show like her head being chopped off. And, uh, it, and again, it shows like one of the first things they're trying to film is the execution of Mary Queen of Scots. We're fascinated with it, right? Comes up in all the Mary uh, Queen of Scots films etc. Lady Jane Grey, we talked about the De La Roche painting as well. Obviously, if you've seen the Helena Bonham Carter one, it ends with a really interesting portrayal, which draws directly on sources from the period. Now, there's different accounts of her execution. If this one is accurate, we don't know. But they literally took one of the accounts of her execution, where she was fumbling for the block and struggling, and, turn, and literally filmed it. So it makes a very kind of emotional and raw portrayal. That same of uh, De La Roche uh, uh, inspiration as well. Now, Anne Boleyn and Marie Antoinette are the other ones that get a lot of coverage of their execution. And both of them, again, it's this dichotomy. Are they victims? Were they innocent? Were they just, again, just victims of the political turbulence or Cromwell's machinations, etc.? Or, again, were they deserving of death? Were they profligate, horrible, you know, politically involved and needed to go kind of thing? Or were they sleeping around with all these men and therefore needed to go? So this, the jury, again, is still out on these women. But their execution, again, has to always kind of feature largely in any portrayal of their lives. Now, I'm going to move into the Virago side of thing. I'm going to move into the sexuality side because we can't ignore this. Um, we love scandal. We love naughtiness. And I just gave a paper in Newcastle about sexual slander in Queens. And basically, the upshot of that discussion was mud sticks. And these rumors that are kind of brought up to bring a woman down is uh, basically attacking a woman's lack of chastity. Chastity being probably the fundamental ideal of queenship is a way to attack a woman. It can also be a way to attack a queen, by a king by attacking the queen, if you like. So it's something, these rumors and allegations have been going around for centuries. And it's no surprise that that scandal and rumor makes it to the screen. And again, Helen Mirren, in a recent interview about Catherine the Great, she said she couldn't 
believe one of the first things someone asked her when they heard she was dating Catherine the Great is, what are you doing about the horse? And she's like, seriously? Are people still talking about that? No way. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so we're still, again, we're still kind of going through these. The interesting ingredient now is post-sexual revolution. So we talked about Marlena Dietrich and how that was kind of a little bit, a little bit much for the censors. Nothing compared on what we do today. Again, the tutors um, ample evidence of that. So again, we have this. Now we can go that bit further because our own kind of uh, our own comfort uh, areas of a comfort zone, if you like, in the portrayal of these sexual relationships is much, much different. So what's interesting as well is we're also having more sympathetic narratives. So queens that have been accused of having affairs, we're now coming up with stories and narratives and ways of spinning that that, again, make it uh, more sympathetic. So a royal affair. Anybody seen that? Yeah, again, that kind of makes out that she and Strunzi were changing the world and, and they fell in love and that's okay because her husband was horrible and mad. Um, so again, we're kind of, you know, spitting that narrative. Marie Antoinette, again, well, what can you do? She had a horrible husband. She fell in love. It's not so bad, you know. So we're, we're kind of changing it. And some of these great kind of did they or didn't they? Sometimes in the film they do, sometimes they don't. So again, these big kind of questions, Anne of Austria and the Musketeers, Elizabeth and Dudley, we still keep asking that question. We'll never know. We've talked about Catherine the Great. But the question is, are we more interested in their love lives than them as powerful women? Now, Going out a little bit further in terms of modern values, another thing that's really changed is our feeling about same-sex relationships. Now, many of these women in their own time were rumored to have had same-sex relationships. Now, obviously, The Favourite was much talked about earlier this year in the portrayal of Anne's relationship with both um, Abigail and Sarah, the Duchess of Marlborough, being shown as lesbian and, and again, sex being shown. Now, that's something, obviously, that we'll never know what happens behind closed doors. The Girl King with Christina of Sweden, again, took a similar line. And also, there's Adjian Echen, again, in the relationship between um, the Marie Antoinette and the Princesse de Lamval. Again, Marie Antoinette's sexuality was an absolute kind of central bit of the French Revolution. The Libelle that came out with the work, effectively, they are pornographic, alleging that she slept with anyone and everyone. I mean, they threw the kitchen sink at her. They said she slept with her in-laws, men, women, her son, the whole shebang, right? So they really kind of threw everything at the kitchen sink. And again, some of that we are now portraying in different ways with a kind of modern sensibilities. I need to kind of move a little bit faster. Um, so villains. So again, obviously, we also have turned some queens into these kind of almost cartoony villains, the queens we love to hate. And it's interesting that some queens have a black legend around them that they cannot scrub off. And some women have these halo effects that no matter what we find out that they really did in their life, we still think, oh, they're wonderful. We love them. It's okay. You know, so again, these women here, Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary. And again, um, I've got one of my PhD students here, Joe, who's looking at the... Uh, the uh, the actual reputation of, of this kind of creation, the idea of Bloody Mary. But she keeps showing up on our screens as this foil. Elizabeth has the halo. Mary has the black legend. And again, as much as historiography is looking at her life in a different way and reappraising her reign and reappraising her personally, in popular culture, she remains the villain. Catherine de' Medici remains the villain. Again, going back to reign, one of the reasons why that doesn't work for me is they've cast Megan Fellows, who was Anne of Green Gables, as Catherine de' Medici. I'm sorry, for me, she's Anne of Green Gables. I'm seeing her with pigtails. I'm not getting a scheming villain, but hey-ho. Um, and again, Marie de' Medici as well. When she does show up on our screen, she tends to be this ambitious schemer. 
So just kind of rounding off here, I wanted to kind of finish with the accuracy debate because that is the question that we're always asking ourselves. Is it accurate? And of course, the beginning of this year, there was a slew of articles about Mary, Queen of Scots where historians said, this isn't accurate, this isn't right. And a lot of them were team Elizabeth and were not very happy about the way that Elizabeth was portrayed, which I understand. It's a, it was a very team Mary film, let's face it. So again, there was a lot of arguments about accuracy. The favorite as well, people were saying, oh, is there really a lesbian affair going off? Do we really know? What about the rabbits? What's going on with that? You know, so again, there was a lot of discussions about accuracy. Now, accuracy is important, and it is important not to misinform the public. And I've got three medieval examples here. And these are all queens that I've worked with where there's been horrible misrepresentations of their life on film, which has led to people having completely the wrong idea about them. So Kingdom of Heaven. Um, so she does not run off with uh, Balian of Iblin at the end. I'm sorry, guys. Spoilers. It doesn't happen. Sorry. She dies She dies a sad death of plague, and it's, you know, it, with her daughters by Guy de Lusignan. That's, that's what happens, really. Really. It'd be nice to think that she ended up in France running around and having a nice life, but that's not what happened. I study actually one of the first of Navarre, Joan of Navarre. Anybody seen Nightfall? Yeah, sorry guys, she didn't have an affair with the head of the Templars. That just didn't happen at all. She was a really saintly queen. So that, that's just like 180 degrees from her life, okay? But it's become the major threat of a major TV series and, and she dies rather sadly. It's, it's all, I, I felt really bad for her. My poor Juana. Anyway, and then finally, Braveheart. You guys have all seen Braveheart, right? How many people are out there thinking Edward III is William Wallace's love child? Oh, no, she wasn't even there. She was a child. Come on. So, you know, okay, so this, these all show what can go wrong when, when, when you misinform the public and people are misunderstanding kind of what happens. But on the other hand, we have to remember that there has to be some artistic license here. And that films and novels are telling a story and they are not trying to be 100% accurate. They are trying to entertain. Now, obviously, when they misinform, it can create some problems. It can create misunderstandings, which can lead to interesting repercussions in popular culture and historical memory. But we do need to understand that. And what I always ask myself is not necessarily, is it accurate, but what's the message? Why have they done it that way? When they made Dudley a homosexual in Mary Queen of Scots, why did they make that choice to do that? When they portrayed this person this way, when they cut out that bit of their lives, when they altered the plot to make this happen, what's the message? What are they trying to say about that woman? What are they trying to say about queenship? And what are they saying about us as well? And those are the kind of critical questions we have to ask ourselves. So just to round up and get back to those big questions, again, thinking about the connection between the early modern, I hope I've kind of answered that. We've kind of drawn some connections in terms of politics, feminism, our own modern concerns being reflected in our portrayal of the early modern. And actually, one of the things we have to remember is that we are continually revisiting these women's lives, and we're almost remaking them in our own image as much as we are trying to understand their lives better. So we just need to kind of think about that. Thinking about why we focus on particular queens, that kind of comfort blanket. How many of you guys love to go back and reread uh, old novels that you love, and you go back to them because you, you love them, you know you're going to like them, you don't need to worry about it, they're like a comfortable slipper right? So we do keep going back to them. We also keep revisiting moments in our own history that's important to us. So we talked about Tilbury and we talked about connecting with the past. So that's another thing. But we also need to look for lesser known faces. Queen Charlotte, there's Helen Mirren and Queen Charlotte in the Madness of King George. 
Catherine of Braganza, a really fascinating queen. We see her there in the power and the passion. And more recently, again, the early years of Catherine of Aragon being shown in the Spanish princess. So again, we need to kind of, the Holy Trinity and all that kind of good stuff is great, but we need to also remember there's a lot of other women who have fascinating lives that need to be shown. And the favorite, the popularity of the favorite really shows that a queen that has been kind of forgotten in popular culture, Queen Anne, can actually sell at the box office, can actually intrigue people, even if they haven't seen their lives filmed 320 times. So we do need to remember that. And then finally, just being aware of these boxes, being aware of these stereotypes and critically challenging them and saying, okay, why? Why are we just focusing on her love life and not the amazing things that she did? Why are we portraying her in this way? Why are we focusing on her teen years? You know, what's going on there? And then finally, kind of having that critical awareness of artistic license and recognizing that Okay, it may not be accurate, but hopefully that's an excuse for you to go buy the history books and find out what really happened. And if it inspires you to do that, then as far as I'm concerned as a historian, that's winning. A lot of my students end up in my class because they were inspired by Philippa Gregory. They were inspired by a film. I was inspired as a child by the Elizabeth Taylor film of Cleopatra. It's totally inaccurate, but it got me interested in history. And if it does the job, then more power to them. That was Eleanor Woodacre speaking at our 2019 History Weekend in Winchester. We're not currently holding live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. There you'll also find a wealth of other articles and podcasts on the Second World War. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Emily Brand will be explaining everything you need to know about the Regency era. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.